Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to show 197. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. Hello, and Oh, well, I hope everyone is a big fine and a big dandy. Show 197, we have the final part of Rachel Swarsky's The Lady Who Plucked Red Flowers Beneath the Queen's Window. There we go as well. Give you a little heads up what's coming in the full show. We have a little bit of short fiction by J.M. Perkins. Then we have an interview with Alan Steele, our good friend Alan Steele. He's in the category of Best Novelette for The Emperor of Mars, which we played on Starships over as well. So that's nice to think that's going to maybe win. Well, he's got this new book out, Hex, and I thought I'd give Alan a little phone and we'll have a little chat with Alan. Then we have that main fiction by Rachel Swarcy. This is the final part of her Hugo-nominated Nebula-winning story, The Lady Who Plucked Red Flowers Beneath the Queen's Window. Then we have a little interview with Connie Willis. Connie, as you know, most of you know, is in the Time Travel Lectures, which is coming up this Saturday, if anyone's interested in that. There's still tickets for sale for that. little chat with Connie about time travel. So that is Starship Sofa, show 197. We hope you enjoyed and stick around. Before we get into the first little piece on this show, I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who came over and participated in Starship Silver's Summer Sale. Yes, a total success. Thank you very much. That was amazing. So it's it's off now. It's all finished there now. And I just wanted to again say a big thank you to Josh who 
not only just move Starship Sofa, you know, lock, stock and barrel onto his servers, but he also had to build that page up as well. So, Josh, thank you so much. And again, everyone who kind of participated, thank you very much. So, I think we'll get into our first little piece of fiction. This is a short fiction. It is called Eining the Overlay by J.M. Perkins. J.M. Perkins is a writer from San Diego, California, who writes speculative fiction and whatever else pays those bills. Previously, John has has worked as a PRD in June Steve, 365 Tomorrows, Godzilla Haiku, and more. Apparently he's obsessed with argumented reality, contagious cancers, and militants cults, all of which has been worked into his novel, Kibo. You can find links to his published works, assorted blather and strange videos featuring fast food mascots at strugglingwordguy.com. I'll put a link on so you can go over there. The story was first published in 365 Tomorrows. It is narrated by our good friend Dan Rabards. Dan, a writer of fantasy novels, speculative fiction, sometimes narrator of podcasts. He's been on this show and done a few. Occasional sailor of sailing things and father of two wee miracles in a little house on a hill under the southern sun. Dan, that's fantastic little bio. Thank you so much. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Ignoring the Overlay by J.M. Perkins. Jenny sat, tapping her fingers to keep from biting her nails. She was having trouble concentrating. She was having trouble being here and now in this hot vinyl booth in the retro burger joint. The overlay contacts in Jenny's eyes flashed red, all manner of cautionary metadata and concerned messages from her always networked friends streamed before her eyes. She could barely see through all the blinking as the computers in her shoes fed info and communication in real time. Shit, Jenny said as a haptic tingle informed her that one of her parents had pulled her feed. It took five seconds of stillness before the message came. Like a cruise ship crashing through sailboats came all caps text from MOM. All the other streams shrunk and minimised before the alpha priority of parental communication. Young lady, what the hell do you think you're doing? Jenny thought about responding, had no idea what she could possibly say. I want you to get up and leave that place right now. Jenny bit her lips together, scared now. Robbie lowered his head. He didn't have to ping for information about her surging heart rate. Even without being privy to the conversation, he understood. Jenny, he said. She was about to respond before being derailed by, Jennifer Jean Delancey, I know what you're thinking and you will come home at once. I should just go, he said as he gathered up his things and stood. No, Jenny said. Slowly, as slowly as people ever did the inconceivable, Jenny reached up and removed the contacts. She didn't care about the warning tags, the negative reviews and the other demerit marks that floated like shifting currents about Robbie when she was wearing the overlay. She didn't care about the admonishing of her friends. Jenny didn't even care about what would happen when she got home. Jenny rose and kissed Robbie with as much force as she could. Caps messages and moms, be damned.
Next up is a little interview I did with Alan Steele. Like you see, Alan Steele's got his new novel out, Hex, and I just want to see it. Welcome, Mr. Alan Steele. Welcome to coming on Starship Sofa. Oh, nice to be here, Tony. Thanks for inviting me back. Oh, listen, Dave, fantastic. You know, and you're up there now with a Hugo nomination again for that Emperor of Mars. It's it's not long now as well. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's 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 the first nomination in, uh, uh, that I've had for my work in about uh, nine years or so, and uh, it's it certainly, I mean, the cliche is you know it's a it's an honor to be nominated, but it really is. I mean, it is an honor to be to have that story nominated, uh, and, and particularly this one, uh, the Emperor of, of Mars is a. Uh, is one of my uh, favorites of my work. It's a it's a it's a personal work, and uh, it's nice to get this recognition. Well, as soon as you know, you sent you were kind enough to send it over to Starship Sofa, and I read it, and it just like the hairs on the back of your neck kind of stood up because it was it just there is certain stories that just kind of get you straight away. And listen, Alan, you know I'm rooting for that story to to, to win the Hugo Award. That would be fantastic. Are you actually going to the the convention or? Just are you at home sitting, you know, waiting by the computer to find out if you've won? Oh no, I I am definitely going. In fact, when uh, we got the email from the convention committee uh, about three weeks before it was actually publicly announced, uh, telling me that the story had been nominated, uh, my first reaction was to let out a war whoop. <laughs> and my wife, my wife, my wife leads over the computer and reads what's on the screen, and then her first words are, "Oh, we are so going to Reno." Uh, so yes, that was uh, immediately decided, uh, without a doubt, that we were uh, going to go to the Worldcon. You know, even uh, even if the story loses, and you know, uh, there's a strong possibility that it could, uh, I want to be in the audience for that. It's um, I, I don't know if I like say Starship Sofa is up there for a nomination as well, but that, it, for me it's a, just a nerve wracking you know experience. That you know the thought of getting called up and all that kind of stuff as well. So, will you have oh, a? Yeah, it's always, will, it's, I'm just going to oh, say yeah, it's always a thrill. <laughs> would Would you have a speech already prepared, or would you just go up and blag it if you if you won? You know, we just off the cuff. Well, you know. Uh... The first time I had a nomination, um, well, it was I had two nominations in one year. This was back in 1980, uh, 1987, and uh, I, I had uh, a story called uh, The Good Rat, that was nominated for, for Best Novelette, and I had The Death of Captain Future that was nominated for, for, for Best Novella. And uh, I honestly thought that I was going to lose both of those. Uh, because uh, 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 the good rat was up against my friend Jim Kelly's Jim James Patrick Kelly's um, story, Think Like a Dinosaur. And when I read his story, I said, "Okay, that's hands down the best story of the year." Um, and uh, uh, the Death of Captain Future was up against two stories uh, by Ursula K. Le Guin, and also one story by uh, 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 Mike Resnick. And I thought that I was the underdog on both of those. Uh, nonetheless, I wrote down on a piece of paper, you know, the, the names of the people who I would have to thank. 
And over the course of several months, you know, I kind of mentally rehearse uh, a, a speech. Well, as I expected, uh, uh, the good rat lost. I, I knew that was going to happen. Um, but it was totally a complete surprise when the Death of Captain Future won. And I ran up there on stage and looked out at the audience, and there's like two or 3,000 people, and immediately all thoughts of what I was going to say evaporated. <laughs> and the, the only thing that came out of my mouth, I cannot say on radio. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I'm speaking for a family audience here. It was The first word was hot, and I'll, I'll leave it to your imagination of what the second <laughs> word was. So I've, been you... told that this, I've been told that this was the shortest acceptance speech on record. Um <laughs> So this time around, I'm doing the same thing. I'm going to write down on a piece of paper the names of the people uh, who need to be thanked. And if in the event that the story wins, I'm, I'll, I'll walk up on stage and I'll wing it and I'll try not to cuss. Uh, but, you know, I uh, uh, there's four of the stories on that ballot. And once again, I'm up against Jim Kelly, and Jim's written a very strong story. Uh, the other three are by relative newcomers. Sean McMullen isn't. The other two guys uh, uh, are, 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 are fairly new writers. Um, quarterbacking it as dispassionately as I can, uh, I think that, frankly, I think the odds are against my story. Uh, I, Hugo, historically speaking, Hugo's favor new writers. Um, so it could very well go to one of the other guys. And if they get it, great, more power to them. I'll, I'll be applauding them at, uh, and I'll, I'll congratulate them later on. If my story gets it, well, that's pretty good too. I mean, I'll, I'll gladly accept it and thank you very much. I would love you to, Alan. If if it honestly, I would love it to win. And but and if it did, I would hope as well. A few more curse words, you know. Again, all excitement takes over, and you just go up there and just start. You know, whatever comes out, that would be fantastic. So fingers, honestly, I'm I'm rooting for it. Fingers crossed. And I know Starship Sofa's audience just loved that story. The, the amount of emails I got, you know. Well, well, Starship uh, uh, Sofa did a terrific reading of that story. Uh, and I, I mean, I, I just I, I listened to that one with my, my mouth hanging open, thinking, "Oh God, I wish I could read that well." Uh, the uh, uh, and and I'm and, and and I'm believe me, I'm rooting for the sofa too. Uh, so uh, I, if we both win uh, 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 during uh, uh, in Reno, I think. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I take it you're not going to be there, so I'll have to shake your hands in some sort of remote fashion. <laughs> yes, I'll, I'll not be there, unfortunately. But yes, I'll. I'll uh, hopefully, we'll get you. I'll, I'll speak to you again if you know if if, if you were all kind of lucky oh, enough. Yeah. That would be fantastic. Tell us a bit then, because I know we've talked a, a while ago about you know I did an interview with you about Hex, but I've now you know you've now got Hex has come out. It's come out in like hardback format yet, and I've got my signed copy. Thank yeah. you, thank you very much, sir. <laughs> you're quite welcome. That I tell you what, as well, man. You're just looking at it straight away. A f- great cover. Now, is that the same guy that does the covers for normal ones, or is this a different artist altogether? 
Oh, this is a different artist altogether, and I thought he did a terrific job of visualizing it. I mean, uh, he, uh, uh, Ron Miller has done the covers of most of the Coyote books, and this gentleman, whose name escapes me, I don't have the book in front of me right now, I thought uh, did a, a real nice job of visualizing what it looks like from the surface of one of Hex's countless hab uh, habitats. Uh, so that was, yeah, nice job. I think it was Scott, is it Scott Grimondo? Is that? I believe so, yes. Yes, it's honestly striking. And it's, I think that's a game we've mentioned this a couple of times on the show. It's, it's a cover that grabs your attention on the bookshelves, you know, so... That's um, tell us a little bit about it then, Alan, about Hex, and you know, for people who maybe haven't listened to that interview we did earlier on, what, where does Hex fit in into the kind of the ecosystem of your Coyote novels? Well, it uh, it's it's the third novel uh, after Spindrift and Galaxy Blues, which is set in the universe of the Coyote series. Uh, only the first couple of chapters are actually set on Coyote, and then, like the other books, we go off into deep space. Um, it uh, it follows up on the events of those other two books, uh, and it, it takes place on a Dyson Sphere, although this is a Dyson Sphere that is very different, I think, than uh, what has been written before. And it's also, it, it can be written, uh, it can be read on its own. Don't worry, you, you do not have to have read uh, the, the the five books in the uh, the five books in the Coyote series, or the two previous books uh, the, uh, that that spun off of the series. Where that's, that's what I was going to ask you as well. That was my next question. Is this just you know it's you can you can read it alone, or is it better just personally to, to maybe dip into your Coyote? Because honestly, I kind of recommend them enough. I love the Coyote series. Would you, mm -hmm. Do you think people will get the same kind of experience just reading this by itself? I think so. I, I, I think that if you read the entire series, you you see a, a vast sweep. I mean, you can see where I'm going thematically um, uh, with the entire series. I mean, uh, Coyote, the Coyote series on its own is about the establishment of, of the first interstellar colony. And midway through those books, in the, in the third book, uh, uh, Coyote Frontier, we have first contact with an alien race. Um, and that's when the, uh, if you were to chart it out, you know, on the line, you would see uh, a, a alliance are splitting off from that series, and that would be uh, Spindrift, Galaxy Blues, and Hendrix, uh, excuse me, and Hex, uh, uh, becoming sort of a, a, a tangent or a parallel line, which shows us spreading it, going out to the galaxy. Uh, and that's where it sort of goes from there. First we have that initial colony, and, and then we begin to meet the neighbors. Uh, so if you uh, if you care to read an epic that, that is, I think we're up to around a million words, <laughs> uh, then yes, <laughs> then, uh, then you can do that. Uh, and and I had some readers who have. Uh, they've been following this along book by book over the last uh, eleven years or so. Uh, but on the other hand, if you're coming to this new, uh, uh, I mean, 
don't. You could, I think you can read Hex on its own without having to first go back and read the previous volumes. Well, I hope people do go back and, and like, say, grab a listen to it. Because I listen to your stories, you know, on audiobook format, and just fantastic. Do you know what I mean? You just get totally lost in that world. And I'll tell you, with this book, Hex, you know, I've got, like, the book in front of us, The Dust Jacket. You've got a little picture of yourself there. Now, is that sitting in a, in a space shuttle? Is that right? That's in the space shuttle simulator, yeah. Um, a, a few years ago, uh, I went down to Houston, um, Houston, Texas, for a science fiction convention, and a friend of mine who worked for a NASA subcontractor managed to get a VIP tour uh, arranged for me to, to, to visit uh, uh, Johnson Space Center. And one of the things I got to do was to sit in the and uh, sit in the actual. Uh, simulator used by the astronauts uh, to train for the shuttle missions and to fly a simulated launch and landing. So that picture there is where I'm uh, uh, I'm bringing the shuttle down to the ground. <laughs> That's amazing. What's what's your thoughts now? You know, with the kind of the shuttles ending, is are you a space buff? You know, in the real world as well as the science fiction world. Well, you know, I think that we, I, I, for one thing, I don't think this is the end of American man space exploration. I think that we're taking a pause here. Um, we have a, a, a number of private companies uh, like SpaceX and Orbital Sciences, which are gearing up to launch uh, uh, their own manned uh, or man-rated orbital craft. And I think in a few years we're going to be seeing those uh, uh, launching, and, and, and certainly, uh, you know, the Russians will continue to launch, and uh, and now China is, is is coming into its own. So I, I think it's just going to go on. It's, it's just it, it's that this is simply the end of you know uh, of the shuttle era. Like, I'm, I'm starting to see it go. I've I've, uh, I've been to three shuttle launches, and they're magnificent. I mean, they're just awesome to watch those things lift off. And, 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 you know, flying a virtual shuttle is pretty cool, too. But I think uh, that, uh, you know, uh, that this is certainly not an end to, to space exploration. You know, we've been always talking about kind of writing and words and everything. I'm just curious, man. This is just me just being kind of nosy. Are you into TV, like science fiction programs as well, or do you really just kind of concentrate on your your, your fiction and science fiction? Do you, or do you like the... the... Oh, no. Oh, I, I, I watched some. Um, right now, uh, here in the States, they're showing uh, the new Torchwood uh, series, and my wife and I are really digging on that one. We've watched the first two episodes. You, you uh, know what? A, uh, Alan, I'm so glad you said that, because honestly, I've just watched it, because we're getting it, I think, a week later, so we've only, at the minute, I mean, by the time the show comes out, I think it's, it was one more day, and then the second one comes out. But honestly, I thought that, Torchwood. I loved the the other one, the the children one, which was like a five part episode. But I'm really struggling. Hopefully, I'm hoping like the second episode of Torchwood is a lot better than the first one. I just thought, in some respects, it was so. And I put this on Google Plus, you know, and I got an answer back saying it was goofy. And I thought that was exactly the description. You know, the little bit where. The CIA man is is in bed and he gets out and he grabs some pills, you know what I mean? And then he's popping these pills and then he gets his crutch and then he gets a wheelchair, then he gets a you know a taxi, and then a plane, and then he falls down in the garden of Wales. I just thought that whole scene was just like it took all the 
the, the, I don't know what the, the coolness out of Torchwood, what I thought sometimes it had with the last episodes, and it just made it a little bit silly. Yeah, I don't know. I could, I, I could see you seeing that one. Believe me, second episode, it gets better. Right. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm hoping I'm, not. I'm, I'm, um, there's, a, uh, there's another series here, um, and I don't know if you've seen this one or not, but uh, called Falling Skies. Which is again, it's a mini series. It's uh, produced by Steven Spielberg. Uh, and it's about the aftermath of an alien invasion. Uh, I particularly liked this one because, uh, once the alien, the, 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 the it's out. Uh, the setting is is in Massachusetts, where I live. Uh, it's it takes place in the outskirts of Boston, which is not far from from where where I live. So I'm, I'm, uh, it looks like a lot of it was filmed on location. Uh, so it's pretty cool to see an, an alien invasion going on in your own backyard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting series. It's, uh, it's been about five or six episodes in. This seems to be actually the, the state of, uh, of American, uh, uh, TV science fiction is that uh, it, it seems to have gone away uh, or shifting away from seasonal episodic shows uh, and towards uh, 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 miniseries, which have you know a definite beginning and end. And I kind of like that. It's it's like watching a, a novel for television, uh, where you know this thing will have an ending, or at least you suppose the thing will have an ending at, at some point or another. It won't just drag on and on and on and on. What are your feelings, then? Because i tell you what one show I do like is Fringe. Have you a Fringe fan or not? Oh, uh, yeah, we love Fringe. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, fringe is terrific. I have not... Uh, i, I got to tell you, though, I hadn't watched this last series, season, as... as Closely as I as I usually do, it it uh, one of the problems of of getting uh, on in age is that you tend to go to bed a little earlier. <laughs> <laughs> and this 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 one, uh, I have to make an effort to uh, to to uh, stay up late for it. Uh, so I haven't uh, uh, been uh, watching it quite as closely, but. Oh yeah, I mean it's 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 a it's really interesting to uh, in this one to see where it was going and that it was leading into uh, an alternate universe uh, treatment a scenario that was really quite coherent and made a lot of sense. Um, I, I, yeah, I like that one a lot. I tell you, just changing the subject there now, is, uh, again, many thanks. You have kindly donated a story too, Starship Sofa Stories, Volume 3, World Without End, Amen. Where, mm-hmm. I'm putting you on the spot now, but where did that first come out then, Alan? Uh, you mean where was it first published? Yes. So it was published in Asimov's uh, a few years ago, and this was kind of my take on, on, on the singularity. Um so many of the stories dealing with Vingian uh, singularity scenarios I, I read had, had sort of taken this idea okay, uh, we get the singularity and then uh, computers take over and it ends with people being chased around by killer robots and I looked at it and said what if it was uh, exactly the opposite uh, what if we had uh, 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 the emergence of 
of a truly intelligent uh, global uh, 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 computer entity. Uh, and it turned out to be the best thing that could happen to us, uh, that people look back on this and, and think, oh, thank God, the computers got intelligent and, 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 and did this thing. Uh, and what would be the, and then one thought led to the next. What would be the reaction of somebody who had been warning about the singularity, or somebody had been saying that if we have a singularity, it's all going to be death, doom, and destruction? And uh, it kind of led from there. Uh, the story actually takes place as a kind of a monologue, in a way, or, or dialogue rather, uh, between. Uh, three people, and uh, uh, this this particular scientist, uh, a therapist who is brought in to talk to him uh, after he attempts suicide, uh, and and the AI itself. Uh, so this is, uh, in, in a way, um, I'm trying to look for a word. It's almost like a uh, a Socratic dialogue in a way. Um, uh, it's it's not so much of an action piece as it is a think piece. Well, again, I'm chuffed a bit you you let Starships over had this, and it's going to be in like I say, volume three. So thank you so much, Alan. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Just before I kind of shoot off there, what, and, I, and I don't know if you're into telling everybody what you what you're working on now, but I'm hoping you're still writing. Are you still going to? Is there still stuff we can expect to see? Well, let's see. I have just finished a uh, uh, my first young adult novel. It's a it's a YA novel. Uh, the title is The Mountains of the Moon. It, it does not take place in. It, it's a complete standalone novel. It doesn't take place in in the Coyote Universe or the Near Space series or anything like that. Uh, it's on the market now at a publisher. Uh, I haven't been given a yay or an a on it yet, so I can't tell you you know, when it's going to come out, but it's out there. And uh, to tell you the truth, right now I'm taking a bit of a break from writing. Uh, I've I've produced uh, six novels in six years along with a boatload of short stories. And uh, I'm just, uh, for a little while, I'm just going to sit back and cool my heels. Is there never the thought, though, this, this, that's a, uh, a nice idea, but is there never the thought it might be hard to get back into it? Have you, I don't know, have you took a break before, or...? Oh, yeah. Periodically, every few years or so, I'll do this. You know, uh, it, it has been a while. It's been about six years since I've given myself a sabbatical. And uh, it doesn't really... Uh, I will begin writing when the itch gets to the point uh, that I've got to scratch it, you know, and, and eventually it will get around to the point that... Okay, damn it! I've got to write a story, or I will go insane. Uh, and it just uh, when I'm ready to write again, uh, I'll start writing again. Uh, it'll probably be sometime later this year. I'm not going to take that long of a break. I was going to. What will you do in the meantime then? Because if, like, you know, somebody who's, I guess, writing is like a passion where it, it most people it has to be itched every time. What What do you keep? What do you occupy yourself with then? Oh, I mean, I'm, I'm, well, if I'm catching up on my reading, uh, I'm walking the dogs, I'm doing yard work. Uh, in other words, I'm doing all this ordinary stuff uh, that is completely, you know, uncreative. Uh, I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm still 
doing some research and taking notes and things like that. I mean, I'm not completely follow about this. Uh, I've got some ideas of what the next novel is going to be, and so I've begun taking notes for that. Uh, I'm just not doing what I'm uh, what I'm used to doing when I'm writing uh, a novel, which is getting up every morning and hitting the keyboard at eight o'clock and and writing until noon. Uh, that's just the main thing that I'm not doing right now. Well, listen, Alan. Honestly, good luck with the Hugo Award. I'm rooting for you there, totally. Um, just. And I'm rooting for you too, man. Thank you, honestly. Thank you so much. Just fingers crossed it all works out for you. And, you know, you don't take too long <laughs> on your sabbatical. <laughs> okay, thanks. You look after yourself. Okay, you too, Tony. There you go. Don't forget to put a link on. I have, like I said in, in the interview, I have my little copy here of... Part part of the perks of his Alan's hex and good luck with that, Alan, in the Hugo nominations. You know, you never know, sir. Never know. So next up is the final part of Rachel Swarsky's The Lady Who Plucked Red Flowers Beneath the Queen's Window. Like I say, it is narrated by our very own Amy H. Sturgis. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. In part one of The Lady Who Plucked Red Flowers Beneath the Queen's Window, the lady was unfairly suspected of treason, killed by order of her love, Queen Reina, and her soul bound for service. But the sorceress returned to back the usurper, Queen Reina's daughter Trice, who murdered her mother to become queen. In part two, different individuals over a period of millennia summon the lady, for the purpose of using her spells. The world looks increasingly unfamiliar to the lady, until at last she is summoned by a scholastic, Misa Meticulous, who wishes her to stay in the present as a voice of the past. And now, the third and final part of The Lady Who Plucked Red Flowers Beneath the Queen's Window. If I was to stay... I told Misa, then she must understand that I'd had enough of worms and their attempts at magic. I did not want them crowding my time in the light. The corners of Misa's mouth drew downward in disapproval, but she answered, The Academy puts us at the crossroads of myriad beliefs. Sometimes we must set aside our own. She reached out to touch me. You're giving us a great gift by staying. We'll always respect that. Misa and I worked closely during my first days at the Academy. We argued over everything. Our roles switched rapidly and contentiously from master to apprentice and back again. She would begin by asking me questions, and then, as I told her about what I'd learned in my matriline's locked rooms, she would interrupt me to tell me I was wrong. Her people had experimented with such things, and they never performed consistently. Within moments, we'd be shouting about what magic meant and what it signified and what it wanted, because one thing we agreed on was that magic was a little bit alive. Misa suspended her teaching while she worked with me, so we had the days to ourselves in the vast salon where she taught. Her people's magic was more than superficially dissimilar from mine. 
They constructed their spells into physical geometries by mapping out elaborate equations that determined whether they would be cylinders or dodecahedrons, formed of garnet or lapis lazuli or cages of copper strands. Even their academy's construction reflected magical intentions, although Misa told me its effects were vague and diffuse. Magic is like architecture, she said. You have to build the right container for magic to grow in, the right house for its heart. You fail to consider the poetry of magic, I contended. It likes to be teased with images, cajoled with irony. It wants to match wits. Your spells are random, Misa answered. Even you don't understand how they work. You've admitted it yourself. The effects are variable, unpredictable. It lacks rigor. And accomplishes grandeur, I said. How many of your scholars can match me? I soon learned that Misa was not, as she claimed, an unimportant scholar. By agreement, we allowed her female pupils to enter the salon from time to time for consultations. The young women, who looked startlingly young in their loose white garments, approached Misa with an awe that verged on fear. Once, a very young girl who looked barely out of puberty ended their session by giving a low bow and kissing Misa's hand. She turned vivid red and fled the salon. Misa shook her head as the echoes of the girl's footsteps faded. She just wishes she was taking from all and nimble. Why do you persist in this deception? I asked. You have as many spells in the library as he does. It is you, not he, who was asked to join the academy as a scholar. She slid me a dubious look. You've been talking to people? I have been listening. I've been here a long time, said Misa. They need people like me to do the little things so greater minds like all the nimbles can be kept clear. But her words were clearly untrue. All of the academy scholars, from the most renowned to the most inexperienced, sent to Misa for consultations. She greeted their pages with good humor and false humility, and then went to meet her fellow scholars elsewhere, leaving her salon to me so that I could study or contemplate as I wished. In the land of flowered hills, there had once been a famous scholar named the woman who would ask the breeze for whys and wherefores. Misa was such a woman. Relentlessly impractical, always half occupied by her studies, we ate together, talked together, slept together in her chamber, and yet I never saw her focus fully on anything, except when she was engrossed in transforming her abstract magical theories into complex, beautiful tangibles. Sometimes I paused to consider how different Misa was from my first love. Misa's scattered, self-effaced pursuit of knowledge was nothing like Reina's dignified exercise of power. Reina was like a statue formed in a beautiful but permanent stasis, never learning or changing. Misa tumbled everywhere like a curious wind, seeking to understand and alter and collaborate, but never to master. In our first days together. Misa and I shared an abundance of excruciating, contentious, awe-inspiring novelty. We were separated by cultures and centuries, 
and yet we were attracted to each other even more strongly because of the strangeness we brought into each other's lives. The academy was controlled by a rotating council of scholars that was chosen annually by lots. They made their decisions by consensus and exercised control over issues great and small, including the selection of new mages who were invited to join the academy as scholars and thus enter the pool of people who might someday control it. I'm grateful every year when they don't draw my name, Misa said. We were sitting in her salon during the late afternoon, relaxing on reclining couches and sipping a hot, sweet drink from Celadon cups. One of Misa's students sat with us, a startle-eyed girl who kept her bald head powdered and smooth, whom Misa had confided she found promising. The drink smelled of oranges and cinnamon. I savored it, ever amazed by the abilities of my strange straw body. I looked to Misa. Why? Misa shuddered. Being on the council would be terrible. Why? I asked again, but she only repeated herself in a louder voice, growing increasingly frustrated with my questions. Later, when Misa left to discuss a spell with one of the Academy's male scholars, her student told me, Misa doesn't want to be elevated over others. It's a very great taboo for her people. It is self-indulgent to avoid power, I said. Someone must wield it, better the strong than the weak. Misa's student fidgeted uncomfortably. Her people don't see it that way. I sipped from my cup. Then they are fools. Misa's student said nothing in response, but she excused herself from the salon as soon as she finished her drink. The council requested my presence when I had been at the academy for a year. They wished to formalize the terms of my stay. Sleepless ones who remained were expected to hold their own classes and contribute to the institution's body of knowledge. I will teach, I told Misa, but only women. Why? demanded Misa. What is your irrational attachment to this prejudice? I will not desecrate women's magic by teaching it to men. How is it desecration? Women's magic is meant for women. Putting it into men's hands is degrading. But why? Our argument intensified. I began to rage. Men are not worthy of women's magic. They're small-skulled and cringing and animalistic. It would be wrong. Why, 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 Misa demanded, quoting from philosophical dialogues and describing experiments that supposedly proved there was no difference between men's and women's magic. We circled and struck at one another's arguments as if we were animals competing over territory. We tangled our horns and drew blood from insignificant wounds, but neither of us seemed able to strike a final blow. Enough, I shouted. You've always told me that the Academy respects the sacred beliefs of other cultures. These are mine. They're absurd. If you will not agree, then I will not teach. Banish me back to the dark. It does not matter to me. Of course, it did matter to me. I had grown too attached to chaos and clamor, and to Misa, but I refused to admit it. In the end, Misa agreed to argue my intentions before the council. She looked at turns furious and miserable. They won't agree, she said. How can they? But I'll do what I can. 
The next day, Misa rubbed dense floral unguents into her scalp and decorated her fingers with arcane rings. Her quills trembled and fanned upward, displaying her anxiety. The circular council room glowed with faint magical light. Cold air mixed with the musky scents favored by high-ranking scholars, along with hints of smoke and herbs. Archways loomed at each of the cardinal directions. Misa led us through the eastern archway, which she explained was for negotiation, and into the center of the mosaic floor. The council scholars sat on raised couches arrayed around the circumference of the room. Each sat below a torch that guttered red and gold. Rendering the counselors' bodies vivid against the dim, I caught sight of a man in layered red and yellow robes, his head surmounted by a brass circlet that twinkled with lights that flared and then flitted out of existence like winking stars. To his side sat a tall woman with mossy hair and bark-like skin, and beside her a man with two heads and torsos mounted upon a single pair of legs. A woman raised her hand in greeting to Misa, and water cascaded from her arms like a waterfall, churning into a mist that evaporated before it touched the floor. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So, for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up! What was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Nisa had told me that older scholars were often changed by her people's magic. That it shaped their bodies in the way they shaped their spells. I had not understood her before. A long, narrow man seemed to be the focal point of the other counselor's attention. Fine, sensory hairs covered his skin. They quivered in our direction like a small animal sniffing. What do you suggest? He asked. Shall we establish a woman-only library? Shall we inspect our students' genitalia to ensure there are no men-women or women-men or twin-sexed among them? Never mind that," countered a voice behind us. I turned to see a pudgy woman garbed in heavy metal sheets. It's irrelevant to object on the basis of pragmatism. This request is exclusionary. Worse," added the waterfall woman. "It's immoral." The counselors around her nodded their heads in affirmation. 
Two identical-looking men in leather hoods fluttered their hands to show support. Misa looked to each assenting scholar in turn. You are correct. It is exclusionist and immoral. But I ask you to think about deeper issues. If we reject Neva's conditions, then everything she knows will be lost. Isn't it better that some know than that everyone forgets? Is it worth preserving knowledge if the price is bigotry? Asked the narrow man with the sensory hairs. But the other scholar's eyes fixed on Misa. They continued to argue for some time, but the conclusion had been foregone as soon as Misa spoke. There is nothing scholars love more than knowledge. Is it strange for you, I asked Misa, to spend so much time with someone trapped in the body of a doll? We were alone in the tiny, cluttered room where she slept. It was a roughly hewn underground cavity, its only entrance and exit by ladder. Misa admitted that the academy offered better accommodations, but claimed she preferred rooms like this one. Misa exclaimed with mock surprise, "You're trapped in the body of a doll? I'd never noticed." She grinned in my direction. I rewarded her with laughter. "I've gotten used to the straw men," she said more seriously. "When we talk." I'm thinking about spells and magic and the things you've seen, not straw. Nevertheless, straw remained inescapably cumbersome. Misa suggested games and spells and implements, but I refused objects that would estrange our intimacy. We lay together at night and traded words. Her hands busy at giving her pleasure, while I watched and whispered. Afterward, we lay close. But I could not give her the warmth of a body I did not possess. One night I woke long after our lovemaking to discover that she was no longer beside me. I found her in the salon, her equations spiraling across a row of crystal globes. A doll hung from the wall beside her, awkwardly suspended by its nape. Its skin was warm and soft and tinted the same sienna that mine had been so many eons ago. I raised its face and saw features matching the sketches that the sculptor's assistant had made during our sessions. Misa looked up from her calculations. She smiled with mild embarrassment. "I should have known a simple adaptation wouldn't work," she said. "Otherwise, Olin Nimble would have discarded straw years ago. But I thought, if I worked it out." I moved behind her and beheld the array of crystal globes. All showing spidery white equations, below them lay a half-formed spell of polished wood and peridot chips. Misa's quill mane quivered. It's late, she said, taking my hand. We should return to bed. Misa often left her projects half done and scattered. I like to think the doll would have been different. I like to think she would have finished it. Instead, she was drawn into the whirl of events happening outside the academy. She began leaving me behind in her chambers while she spent all hours in her salon, almost sleepwalking through the brief periods when she returned to me, and then rising restless in the dark and returning to her work. By choice, I remained unclear about the shape of the external cataclysm. I did not want to be drawn further into the academy's politics. My lectures provided little distraction. 
The students were as preoccupied as Misa. This is not a time for theory, one woman complained when I tried to draw my students into a discussion of magic's predilections. She did not return the following morning. Eventually, no one else returned either. Loneliness drove me where curiosity could not, and I began following Misa to her salon. Since I refused to help with her spells, she acknowledged my presence with little more than a glance before returning to her labors. Absent her attention, I studied and paced. Once, after leaving the salon for several hours, Misa returned with a bustle of scholars, both men and women, all brightly clad and shouting. They halted abruptly when they saw me. "'I forgot you were here,' Misa said without much contrition. I tensed, angry and alienated, but unwilling to show my rage before the worms. "'I will return to your chamber,' I said through tightened lips. Before I even left the room, they began shouting again. Their voices weren't like scholars debating. They lashed at each other with their words. They were angry. They were afraid. That night, I went to Misa and finally asked for explanations— "'It's a plague,' she said, "'a plague that made its victims bleed from the skin and eyes "'and then swelled their tongues until they suffocated. "'They couldn't cure it. "'They treated one symptom only to find the others worsening. "'The patients died, and then the mages who treated them died too. "'I declared that the disease must be magic. "'Misa glared at me with unexpected anger and answered that no, it was not magic. "'If it was magic, they would have cured it. "'This was something foul and deadly and natural. "'She'd grown gaunt by then, the gentle cushions of fat at her chin and stomach "'disappearing as her ribs grew prominent. "'After she slept, her headrest was covered with quills that had fallen out during the night, "'their pointed tips lackluster and dulled.' I no longer had dialogues or magic or sex to occupy my time. I had only remote, distracted Misa. My world began to shape itself around her, my love for her, my concern for her, my dread that she wouldn't find a cure, and my fear of what I'd do if she didn't. She was weak, and she was leading me into weakness. My mind sketched patterns I didn't want to imagine— I heard the spirits in the desert which should not have been whispering about the deaths of civilizations and about choices between honor and love. Misa stopped sleeping. Instead, she sat on the bed in the dark, staring into shadows and worrying her hands. There is no cure, she muttered. I lay behind her, watching her silhouette. Of course there's a cure. Oh, of course, snapped Misa. We're just too ignorant to find it. Such irrational anger. I never learned how to respond to a lover so easily swayed by her emotions. I did not say that you were ignorant. As long as you didn't say it. Misa pulled to her feet and began pacing, footsteps thumping against the piled rugs. I realized that in all my worrying, I'd never paused to consider where the plague had been, whether it had ravaged the communities where Misa had lived and loved, my people would have thought it a weakness to let such things affect them. Perhaps you are ignorant, I said. Maybe you can't cure this plague by building little boxes. Have you thought of that? I expected Misa to look angry, but instead she turned back with an expression of awe. Maybe that's it, she said slowly. Maybe we need your kind of magic. 
maybe we need poetry. For the first time since the plague began, the lines of tension began to smooth from Misa's face. I loved her. I wanted to see her calm and curious, restored to the woman who marveled new things and spent her nights beside me. So I did what I knew I should not. I sat with her for the next hours and listened as she described the affliction. It had begun in a swamp far to the east, she said, in a humid tangle of roots and branches where a thousand sharp and biting things lurked beneath the water. It traveled west with summer's heat, sickening children and old people first, and then striking the young and healthy. The children and elderly sometimes recovered. The young and healthy never survived. I thought back to diseases I'd known in my youth. A very different illness came to mind. A disease cast by a would-be usurper during my girlhood. It came to the land of flowered hills with the winter wind and froze its victims into statues that would not shatter with blows or melt with heat. For years after Raina's mother killed the usurper and halted the disease, the land of flowered hills was haunted by the glacial, ghostly remains of those once loved. The queen's sorceresses sought them out, one by one, and melted them with memories of passion. It was said that the survivors wept and cursed as their loved ones melted away, for they had grown to love the ever-present icy memorials. That illness was unlike what afflicted Misa's people in all ways but one. That disease, too, had spared the feeble and taken the strong. I told Misa, This is a plague that steals its victims' strength and uses it to kill them. Misa's breaths came slowly and heavily. Yes, that's it, she said. That's what's happening. The victims must steal their strength back from the disease. They must cast their own cures. They must cast your kind of spells, poetry spells. Yes, I said, poetry spells. Misa's eyes closed as if she wanted to weep with relief. She looked so tired and frail. I wanted to lay her down on the bed and stroke her cheeks until she fell asleep. Misa's shoulders shook, but she didn't cry. Instead, she straightened her spectacles and plucked at her robes. With a bit of heat and... How would obsidian translate into poetry? She mused aloud. She started toward the ladder and then paused to look back. Will you come help me, Neva? She must have known what I would say. I'll come, I said quietly. But this is woman's magic. It is not for men. What followed was inevitable, the shudder that passed through Misa as her optimism turned ashen. No, Neva, you wouldn't let people die. But I would, and she should have known that, if she knew me at all. She brought it before the council. She said that was how things were to be decided, by discussion, by consensus. We entered through the western arch, the arch of conflict, the scholars arrayed on their raised couches looked as haggard as Misa. Some seats were empty, others filled by men and women I'd not seen before. "'Why is this a problem?' asked one of the new scholars, an old woman whose face and breasts were stippled with tiny, fanged mouths. "'Teach the spell to women. Have them cast it on the men.' "'The victims must cast it themselves,' Misa said. The old woman scoffed. 
since when does a spell care who casts it? It's old magic, Misa said. Poetry magic. Then what is it like? asked a voice from behind us. We turned to see the narrow man with the fine, sensory hairs, who had demanded at my prior interrogation whether knowledge gained through bigotry was worth preserving. He lowered his gaze onto my face, and his hairs extended toward me, rippling and seeking. Some of us have not had the opportunity to learn for ourselves, he added. I hoped that Misa would intercede with an explanation, but she held her gaze away from mine. Her mouth was tight and narrow. The man spoke again. Unless you feel it would violate your ethics to even describe the issue in my presence. No, it would not. I paused to prepare my words. As I understand it, your people's magic imprisons spells in clever constructions. You alter the shape and texture of the spell as you alter the shape and texture of its casing. Dissenting murmurs rose from the counselors. I realize that's an elementary description, I said. However, it will suffice for contrast. My people attempted to court spells with poetry, using image and symbol and illusion as our tools. Your people give magic a place to dwell. Mine woo it to tryst a while. What does that, interjected the Minimabdol woman, have to do with the victims casting their own spells? Before I could answer, the narrow man spoke. It must be poetry, the symmetry, if you will. Body and disease are battling for the body's strength. The body itself must win the battle. Is that so? the old woman demanded of me. I inclined my head in assent. A woman dressed in robes of scarlet hair looked to Misa. You're confident this will work? Misa's voice was strained and quiet. I am. The woman turned to regard me, scarlet tresses parting over her chest to reveal frog-like skin that glistened with damp. You will not be moved. You won't relinquish the spell? I said, no. Even if we promise to give it only to the women and let the men die? I looked toward Misa. I knew what her people believed. The council might bend in matters of knowledge, but it would not bend in matters of life. I do not believe you would keep such promises. The frog-skinned woman laughed. The inside of her mouth glittered like a cavern filled with crystals. You're right, of course, we wouldn't. She looked to her fellow counselors. I see no other option. I propose an obligation. No, said Misa. I agree with Jayan, said a fat scholar in red and yellow. An obligation. You can't violate her like that said Misa. The Academy is founded on respect. The frog-skinned woman raised her brows at Misa. What is respect worth if we let thousands die? Misa took my hands. Neva, don't let this happen. Please, Neva. She moved yet closer to me, her breath hot, her eyes desperate. You know what men can be. You know they don't have to be ignorant worms or greedy brutes. You know that they can be clever and noble. Remember Pasha. You gave him the spell he needed. Why won't you help us? Pasha, kin of my thoughts, closer than my own skin. It had seemed different then, inside his mind. But I was on my own feet now, looking out for my own eyes. 
and I knew what I knew. When she'd been confronted by the inevitable destruction of our people, Trice had made herself into a brood. She had chosen to degrade herself and her daughters in the name of survival. What would the land of flowered hills have become if she'd succeeded? What would have happened to we hard and haughty people who commanded the sacred powers of wind and sun? I would not desecrate our knowledge by putting it in the hands of animals. This was not just one man who would die from what he learned. This would be unlocking the door to my matriline secret rooms and tearing open the many-drawered cupboards. It would be laying everything sacrosanct bare to corruption. I broke away from Mises' touch. I will tell you nothing. The council acted immediately and unanimously, a cord reached without deliberation. The narrow man wrought a spell shape, using only his hands, which Misa had taught me could be done, but rarely and only by great mages. When his fingers held the right configuration, he blew into their cage. An obligation. It was like falling through blackness. I struggled for purchase, desperate to climb back into myself. My mouth opened. It was not I who spoke. Bring them water from the swamp and damp their brows until they feel the humidity of the place where the disease was born. The spirit of the disease will seek its origins as any born creature will. Let the victims seek with their soul's sight until they find the spirit of the disease standing before them. It will appear differently to each, vaporous and foul or sly and sharp, but they will know it. Let the victims open the mouths of their souls and devour the disease until its spirit is inside their body, as its body is inside their body. This time, they will be the conquerors. When they wake, they will be stronger than they had been before. My words resonated through the chamber. Misa shuddered and began to retch. The frog-skinned woman detached a lock of her scarlet hair and gave it, along with a sphere etched with my declamation, to their fleetest page. My volition rushed back into me as if through a crashing dam. I swelled with my returning power. Magic is a little bit alive. It loves irony and it loves passion. With all the fierceness of my dead land, I began to tear apart my straw body with its own straw hands. The effigy's viscera fell, crushed and crackling to the mosaic floor. The narrow man, alone among the counselors, read my intentions. He sprang to his feet, forming a rapid protection spell between his fingers. It glimmered into being before I could complete my own magic, but I was ablaze with passion and poetry, and I knew that I would prevail. The fire of my anger leapt from my eyes and tongue and caught upon the straw in which I'd been imprisoned. Fire, magic, fury. The academy became an inferno. They summoned me into a carved rock that could see and hear and speak, but could not move. They carried it through the southern arch, the arch of retribution. The narrow man addressed me. His fine, sensory hairs had burned away in the fire, leaving his form bald and pathetic. You are dangerous, he said. 
The council has agreed you cannot remain. The council room was in ruins. The reek of smoke hung like a dense fog over the rubble. Misa sat on one of the few remaining couches, her eyes averted, her body etched with thick, ugly scars. She held her right hand in her lap, its fingers melted into a single claw. I wanted to cradle Misa's ruined hand to kiss and soothe it. It was an unworthy desire. I had no intention of indulging regret. You destroyed the academy, you bitch! snarled a woman to my left. I remembered that she had once gestured waterfalls, but now her arms were burned to stumps. Libraries, students, spells! her voice cracked. The council understands the grave injustice of an obligation, the narrow man continued, as if she had not interjected. We don't take the enslavement of a soul lightly, especially when it violates a promised trust. Though we believe we acted rightfully, we also acknowledge we have done you an injustice. For that, we owe you our contrition. Nevertheless, he continued, it is the council's agreement that you cannot be permitted to remain in the light. It is our duty to send you back into the dark and to bind you there so that you may never answer summons again. I laughed. It was a grating sound. You'll be granting me my dearest wish. He inclined his head. It is always best when aims align. He reached out to the women next to him and took their hands. The remaining council members joined them, bending their bodies until they, themselves, formed the shape of a spell. Misa turned to join them, the tough, shiny substance of her scar tissue catching the light. I knew from Misa's lessons that the texture of her skin would alter and shape the spell. I could recognize their brilliance in that, to understand magic so well that they could form it out of their own bodies. As the last of the scholars moved into place, for a moment I understood the strange, distorted, perfect shape they made. I realized with a slash that I had finally begun to comprehend their magic. And then I sank into final, lasting dark. I remembered. I remembered Misa. I remembered Pasha. I remembered the time when men had summoned me into unknown lands. Always and inevitably, my thoughts returned to the land of flowered hills, the place I had been away from longest, but known best. Misa and Reina. I betrayed one. One betrayed me. Two loves ending in tragedy. Perhaps all loves do. I remembered the locked room in my Matriline's household, all those tiny lacquered drawers filled with marvels. My aunt's hand fluttered above them like a pale butterfly as I wondered which drawer she would open. What wonder would she reveal from a world so vast I could never hope to understand it? To paint a bird, you must show the brush what it means to fly, my aunt told me. Holding my fingers around the brush handle as I strove to echo the perfection of a feather, the brush trembled. Dip into the well, slant, and press. Bristles splay, ink 
bleeds across the scroll, and there, one single graceful stroke aspiring toward flight. What can a woman do when love and time and truth are all at odds with one another, clashing and screeching, wailing and weeping, begging you to enter worlds unlike any you've ever known and save this people, this people, this people from king's shoulders and guttering volcanoes and plagues? What can a woman do when beliefs that seemed as solid as stone have become dry leaves blowing an autumn wind? What can a woman cling to when she must betray her lover's lives or her own? A woman is not a bird. A woman needs ground. All my aunts gathering in a circle around the winter fire to share news and gossip, their voices clat-clat-clatting at each other in comforting, indistinguishable sounds. The wind finds its way in through cracks, and we welcome our friend. It blows through me, carrying scents of pine and snow. I run across the creaking floor to my aunt's knees, which are as tall as I am, my arms slipping around one dark, soft leg, and then another, as I work my way around the circle like a wind, finding the promise of comfort in each new embrace. Light returned and shaded me with gray. I stood on a pedestal under a dark dome, the room around me eaten by shadow. My hands touched my robe, which felt like silk. They encountered each other and felt flesh. I raised them before my face and saw my own hands, brown and short and nimble, the fingernails jagged where I'd caught them on rocks while surveying with Kian in the mountains where the sun rests. Around me, I saw more pedestals arranged in a circle, and atop them strange forms that I could barely distinguish from shade. As my eyes adjusted, I made out a soldier, with his face shadowed beneath a horned helmet, and a woman armored with spines. Next to me stood a child who smelled of stale water and dead fish. His eyes slid in my direction, and I saw they were strangely old and weary. He opened his mouth to yawn, and inside... I saw a ring of needle-sharp teeth. Recognition rushed through me. These were the insomniacs I'd seen in Mises' library, all of them living and embodied, except there were more of us, countless more, all perched and waiting. Magic is a little bit alive. That was my first thought as the creature unfolded before us, its body a strange darkness like the unrelieved black between stars. It was adorned with windows and doors that gleamed with silver-like starlight. They opened and closed like slow blinking, offering us portals into another darkness that hinted at something beyond. The creature was nothing like the entities that I'd believed waited at the core of eternity. It was no frozen-world lizard, waiting to crack traitors in its icy jaws, nor a burning sun welcoming joyous souls as feathers in her wings. And yet, somehow, I knew then that this creature was the deepest essence of the universe, the strange, persistent thing that throbbed like a heart between stars. Its voice was strange, choral, like many voices talking at once. At the same time, it did not sound like a voice at all. It said, 
You are the ones who have reached the end of time. You are witnesses to the end of this universe. As it spoke, it expanded outward. The feigned child staggered back as the darkness approached. He looked toward me with fear in his eyes, and then darkness swelled around me too, and I was surrounded by shadow and pouring starlight. The creature said, From the death of this universe will come the birth of another. This has happened so many times before that it cannot be numbered, unfathomable universes blinking one into the next outside of time. The only continuity lies in the essences that persist from one to the next. Its voice faded. I stretched out my hands into the gentle dark. You want us to be reborn? I asked. I wasn't sure if it could even hear me in its vastness, but it spoke. The new universe will be unlike anything in this one. It will be a strangeness. There will be no born, no you. One cannot speak of a new universe. It is anathema to language. One cannot even ponder it. Above me, a window opened, and it was not a window, but part of this strange being. Soothing, silver brilliance poured from it like water. It rushed over me, tingling like fresh spring mornings and newly drawn breath. I could feel the creature's expectancy around me. More windows opened and closed as other sleepless ones made their choices. I thought of everything then, everything I had thought of during the millennia when I was bound, and everything I should have thought of then but did not have the courage to think. I saw my life from a dozen fractured perspectives, Raina condemning me for helping her daughter steal her throne and dismissing my every subsequent act as a traitor's cowardice. Trice, sneering at my lack of will as she watched me spurn a hundred opportunities for seizing power during centuries of summons. Misa, her brows drawn down in inestimable disappointment, pleading with me to abandon everything I was and become like her instead. They were all right. They were all wrong. My heart shattered into a million sins. I thought of Pasha, who I should never have saved. I thought of how he tried to shield me from the pain of his death, spending his last strength to soothe me before he died alone. For millennia, I had sought oblivion and been denied. Now, as I approached the opportunity to dissipate at last, now I began to understand the desire for something unspeakably, unfathomably new. I reached toward the window. The creature gathered me in its massive blackness and lifted me up, up, up. I became a woman painted in brushstrokes of starlight, fewer and fewer, until I was only a glimmer of silver that had once been a woman, now poised to take flight. I glittered like the stars over the desert which should not have been, eternal witnesses to things long forgotten. The darkness beyond the window pulled me. I leapt toward it and stretched and changed.
there you go. Don't forget, copyright is Rachel's. And again, good luck to Rachel with this. This is up for Hugo Award. You never know. Not be long now as well. <laughs> Three-year-old sound. So, next up is we have a little interview with Connie Willis. As you know, Connie, like I said in the beginning, is doing the time travel lectures. Giving a little talk on time travel this Saturday, the 23rd of July. I just stopped by and said hello to Connie. Hello, how are you? Yes, it's fine. We've just been having, I'm just telling everyone in the audience or in listening to the show, we've just been having a little practice to get the time travel lecture software set up and running. And, oh, it, it does it does test one's patience, Connie. Is, am I right? <laughs> it's okay. I, I, You know, as a science fiction writer, my, my belief is that technology is out to kill us all. So, um, so I... This this morning has just proved that, so uh, I'm happy that we're even able to talk here. <laughs> yes, I mean, I must admit that the line at the minute is lovely and clear, so, if, you know, hopefully on, on come Saturday we'll, we've got it all worked out. I'm going to have it I'm really, perfectly. Yes, I'm really looking forward to listening, you know, even myself, to listen to what you've got to say about time travel. Is... When did time travel, for you, Connie, as a person, when did it come into your life? Did... Has, have you always... You know, I, I, I've always loved time travel. I, it's, it's, there's not one single, you know, aha moment or anything. I think, though, trying to trace it back, it, it probably dates back to reading early, um, when I was like a teenager, reading science fiction stories about time travel, Vintage Season by um, uh, C.L. Moore and Henry Kuttner, and, and especially The Door into Summer by Robert Heinlein, which is still one of my favorite time travel novels of all time. Um, and but the minute the minute I heard about it, um, I knew that this was something I wanted to write about. I just think the past is so fascinating, and the future is so impossible to get to. Both of them are impossible to get to. And so when you can can have time travel at your disposal, you know you can do all kinds of things with it. And and what I'm hoping to talk about um, Saturday is is just how many different kinds of things you can do with time travel and how many needs it fulfills because not all time travel stories are alike. And, um, and they, it's just an endlessly fascinating subject, I think. You, you mentioned there, Connie, you know, like, about being in the past and being in the future. Is, is, is there a little bit where you prefer the past time travel stories or the future time travel stories? Or is it just you know, like an amalgamation of oh, you know, anyone? You know, now, in the in the early time tra- in in early stories, early science fiction, they would they would get you to the future somehow. They would use a time machine like like H. G. Wells does to get you to the future, and then and then they realized that people didn't even need that. They didn't need any excuse to have a story set in the future, so they would just up and set you know stories in the future. So I think that in some sense, all science fiction stories are time travel stories because they are either in the past or future. From my personal point of view, I just adore history. And I and I love the real past. I know lots of people play with the alternative pasts and things, and that's really fun too. But to me, the real past is so much more complicated and interesting than anything the, the that I, I that I could possibly make up. You know, so so that's uh, I'm always drawn to things, and especially to certain periods of history. Although I don't, I'm not a person who just likes the past. You know, I mean, so there's the French, you know, the French Revolution kind of leaves me cold and, 
and there are just whole swaths of history I don't have any interest in. But but certain things, the Blitz and ancient Egypt and you know um, uh, the Civil War, uh, American Civil War, all of those things just have some sort of resonance with me, and those are my times and the times I really want to go into. I asked this to ABH Sturgis a couple of weeks ago about time travel. Would it, you know, if you were in a shop browsing and you, you, you discovered a new author and it was time travel, would that time travel hook be enough for you to invest time and energy to, to, buy, to buy a book and to read a new author? Oh, absolutely. I think people just, you know, one of the things was in the 50s, um, people messed with time travel a lot. And everybody then pronounced that it was dead and there was nothing left to be said all the possible stories had been written <laughs> and there was no point in writing time travel anymore well obviously you know 50 years later 60 years later we are still getting whole new crops of really fascinating time travel authors and so um yeah of course i i i'm always looking for new and fascinating time travel stories uh- have you got, I mean, I'm putting you on the spot here, so please, you know, if you, if you can't think of anyone, is there, a, like, a favourite short story of yours which, you know, encompasses time travel? Of mine? Yes. That something oh, I read or something so, I wrote? <laughs> yeah, something, something that you've read by an, another author. Oh, you know, Vintage Season is still probably my favourite time travel story of all time, and it was one of the first I read, uh, partly because the, the time travellers are are going back for a totally different reason than, you know, they're not just, they're not just tourists uh, of, a, of a, the kind of tourists who go to Disneyland. You know, they're, they're, they're tourists, but of a very specific and very nasty kind. And, uh, and I think that was my first introduction to the whole idea that the past could be exploited as well as, and that it's a good thing we don't have time travel because the first thing people always do with the new technology is figure out a way to do something awful with it. <laughs> so... Um, so I think Vintage Season taught me that lesson really early. What do you think, Connie, then, in the real world with time travel? You know, you, you hear these stories that, in theory, in theory, it's possible to time travel. Is, right. Is it, do you think, ever, you know, in our little worlds, this will ever come about? Or is it always going to be, you know, you need, like, giant planets to spin around millions right. of miles an hour? Right. And, you know. Exactly. You need four black holes and also, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I, you know, as far as the scientific practicality of it, I d- I'm not an expert on that at all. I do, every time I write a new time travel uh, story or novel, I do go back and research all the latest research on time travel because every, all the speculation changes every few years as to what's going to be necessary or if it's possible. Personally, and being married to a physics professor, and we talk about this sometimes, um, I, don't, I don't see how you overcome the paradox. Uh, issue because because history is a chaotic system and in a chaotic system it's impossible to introduce any variable no matter how small without affecting the whole system so I I just don't see how you overcome that paradox thing Um, I would love to believe that we could go to the past and I would love to believe that we would not immediately pillage it (laughs) but um, or do horrible damage to it Um, and and even though I adore writing time travel stories you know I mean one of the things that has become very, very clear, um, and I put all this in my books, is that the law of unintended consequences is always operating. And, you know, this, this idea that we could go in the past and shoot Hitler in Munich in 1935 and everything would be great from then on 
is is just not true. We we have no idea of knowing what the consequences of any action would be, just like we don't know the consequences of any action that we do now. And we could make things far worse by attempting to do something really good. So um, so I, I, I think it's, it's a dilemma, and it, it's such a dilemma for time travel that I'm pretty sure it's not ever going to be possible. But who knows, you know? It's, if, if, it's, if it is possible, I want to go, and I want to go to the Blitz. Immediately. Well, Connie, I'm going to, I'm getting the hairs on the back of my neck standing up here. I'm going to, I'm going to stop you now because I want people to come over to the lecture. Honestly, we could listen, I could listen to you all day about time travel. So, please, if anyone wants to pop over and, you know, it's, it's on this Saturday, the 23rd of July. Connie, what can I say? Thank you so much for coming on the show today and for taking part in this time travel lecture. All right. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to it. Take good care. If you can make this Saturday, please do pop over. Or if not, you know, you will get like the video recording of that and everything that went with it. So if you, you know, you can't make that date the 23rd, but you do want to listen to Ted Chang, Amy H. Sturgis and Connie Willis talk about time travel, the fantastic subject. Pop over to Starship Sova and there's a link there that'll take you to this, the show. Just click on buy the show or buy that event. And about seven days afterwards, I'll email it to you, or the links anyways. But actually, when I'm saying that, you know, I'll have to do it a little bit quicker than that, because I've got me happy holidays. Yes, we're going to Greece. <laughs> this old white body of a man there on a Greek beach. Oh, the thought. Ladies, flip-flops. Oh, and a mankini. Can't get better than that. So that is, sure, <laughs> just the thoughts I've left with you. <laughs> It's making men's be a curdle. Oh, totally, for God's sake. So anyways, that is show 197. I hope you've enjoyed it. One more, and then I'm off for a few weeks. I hope that you, you don't mind that. Like I say, go on me happy holidays. Until next week, I'd just like to see you. Good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. A fatly recent procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.